Welcome again to Kluber and Klubroid Radio. The gang is back. Matt is here. He is alive. We have proof. We're looking at him. So uh, <laughs> welcome back, Mr. Most. How you doing? Oh, man. Burning the candle at both ends, but that's all right for right now. So. Yeah. So uh, as we were talking before we hit the record button, this show is all about you, sir. Kinda. At least the first 20, 30 minutes we'll give to you. So, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind just filling in the listeners where you've been, what's been going on, status of your collection, just let her rip. Yeah, for sure. So um, as some of the group knows and some of the people who listen to this podcast, um, there's been a number of changes in terms of my work structure and work life. And also you've got to create balance for yourself, right? Because Mm -hmm. this hobby can turn into a job. And when you turn your hobby into a job, it no longer becomes fun to actually do the things of what you're excited about. Um, So as of July 1st, the area region of which I actually covered has changed to be South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi. Um, What else am I missing here? Alabama, Panhandle of Florida, and also Michigan. Um, Now with that even being said, just like every company in the world right now, um, we're also short people. So I still have two empty territories, the two empty territories that I've had since we've actually started this podcast, um, which has been challenging in itself. But also, I think, you know, one of the the biggest challenges in today's um, work environment is you have to be passionate, right? You have to be passionate about anything you do in life and you have to bring joy to your day to day activities. Um, That being said, I mean, I love what I do. I love the company I work for. But when you're doing things of this matter, sometimes you have to make decisions in life that, you know, sometimes don't always equal up to the best things for things like this as a hobby. So as some of the the listeners know, and I mean, Clint, Zach, you guys know, um, I actually took a cutback in terms of some of the snakes that I've actually been keeping here. And part of that was, and I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout the show, but, you know, keeping animals is a moral and ethical responsibility and individuals need to really start to think about, you know, large collections. If you're having it, you have to be able to touch those animals daily, weekly in a certain amount of time, because you want to check for feces, urate, um, clean water bowls. And on top of it, um, last year was a great year of success for breeding animals. But unfortunately with that brought along additional stress um, and additional stress because I rapidly turned this hobby into a job. And I turned it into a job because of the amount of animals and hatchlings that I was taking care of. And it brought undue stress because one of the things that I always try to do is especially clean daily, check on animals daily, um, monitor, you know, in terms of cleaning substrate, um, even weekly. um, For some of the people that don't know this, I actually clean out my tubs entirely once a week dump the substrate, clean water bowls, everything. Um, And part of that is some of the topics that we've actually talked about, viruses, um, certain pathogens that can come along with all that. And I think there is an undue respect of that because myself, I mean, I consider myself a breeder, but undoubtedly, you know, with that responsibility comes the fact that if I'm selling an animal, my name is attached to that animal. 
And there is a moral and ethical responsibility behind that. You know, oftentimes, you know, we get caught up in some of the flash details of um, promoting things online. I'm sure I just started a trigger effect on Facebook off a morph market post related to um, posting of certain breeders and adding and sharing to the drama that's already in our hobby. But I think there is a moral responsibility by individuals to really kind of look at themselves in a mirror and represent themselves appropriately. Um, with that being said, though, Clint's been awesome. Clint took on a bunch of stuff. Um, and even yesterday I shipped Clint, whew, I don't know, probably like 50 uh, hatchlings from this year, maybe more than 50 that we produced for black rat snake morse. Um, and I think the cool part about that though, and something, you know, we develop and we develop these relationships, friendships, kinships along the line. And I think having that ability to share in the joys of the hobby, you know, Clint obviously is much more active on social media right now than myself. Um, and having Clint in that aspect, I mean, we talk about stuff. I call Clint every weekend. I'm like, Hey Clint, this is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, for that matter of fact, I mean, the winter was a weird winter. Clint, for instance, mm -hmm. moved his whole collection into a new environment. And in that comes some settling effects within a collection. Um, typically, when you move breeders, it can take one to two years for animals to settle in. I've seen it myself with breeding animals. But it's cool when you can have those sorts of partnerships or relationships, because when one person might have a, a tricky season, you have another person that might have animals available and ready because within some of these colubrid markets, we typically see people that are actively searching for stuff. Um, you know, I'm getting blown up lately on a number of Asiatic rat snakes, European rat snakes, and even some North American colubrids. And part of it's because they're not in the hobby anymore, which, you know, brings up something that, Clint last year came to my house and we were talking, sitting down and, um, or maybe it was earlier this year. I don't even remember this year has been flying by, but <laughs> it's been a blur, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I had to reflect upon myself in my keeping is I didn't want these animals to disappear from the hobby. So responsibly, I tried to put them in people's hands that were genuinely passionate about certain things. And I think that's a big picture when we're looking at it from, you know, a small lens of what we're contributing, how we're actually actively doing it. Because when you can reach that goal, um, something that you and I talked on a podcast of kind of community sharing, yep. I think we make monumental change in the hobby because those animals stay within it. But I think one of the hard parts right now that we're seeing, um, and this is even some of the stuff that I see posted and I know I get some negative hits on some of the stuff that I post, but even like the morph market rules in terms of, you know, posting exact images, it's, it's going to kick out people like myself from posting animals or restricting the number of animals that I post purely because I just don't have the time. And I think you see that with a lot of um, 40 to 50 year old age group that does have full-time jobs. Right now they're short people they're overextending themselves so they're not even pairing up animals you know because they just don't have the time to actually actively market and the way that our hobby has changed i would say rapidly within the last 30 years 
we've seen significant changes in the way advertisement works, social media works. And I think one of the things that we're lacking and something I think we can talk about tonight is just the fact that we've lost touch with like natural history, the allure of searching out new species, new breeders, aspects of that, because we're basically spoon fed everything, right? Mm -hmm. If I want to go to morph market, I can click boom and see everything, which has been a hard part for me, like the last four or five years. And I've even said this to some people is when they ask like, well, what's the species that you're really interested in caring about or working with or a new species. And the hard part that I've come to terms with is I'm not seeing anything. Right. And I think some of it is actually an abundance of posting and stuff like that, um, where then I don't have the allure to really like reach out, search for things, which I know are available because I've done this before. Um, but you start to lose that attraction. Right. And so, like I mentioned, I mean, I, I'm not out of the hobby. I'm still breeding. I'm still keeping everything. Yeah. But you, you start to come almost like complacent, right? I think might be a, mm -hmm. a good term for it because when you're not as excited, it turned into a job and you start to question some of the things of what you're doing. Um, and some of the aspect of it is really engaging with each other, talking with other people. That's mm -hmm. always been the most exciting part for me to actually meet people. Um, you know, I've worked with a ton of people with partnerships, breeding loans, breeding partnerships. And it's brought some of the great friends in my life. I mean, Stan Grumbach, Clint, um, you know, even um, Kevin too as well. I mean, out of Illinois with the Texas Rats. I mean, there's just so much cool stuff that's available when we really try to put ourselves out there as a community and something that's looking for something bigger and better. Wow. I think... You nailed it there, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's okay. You know, where do we follow up? You know, so, you know, Matt comes back with a freaking vengeance on his, yeah. his first, uh, his first show. So I, you know, I, I guess I, I want to say, Matt, you know, I'm thrilled that you're back on. Uh, mm -hmm. It has been ages. I, I want to say that in a way, I think you kind of have become that girlfriend that goes to another school. You know, where yeah. all your friends yep. are like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you know Matt, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he exists. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. So good to have you back, buddy. And um, and you're absolutely right. I think that there is so much of this hobby that um, we get away from. And, you know, and it's not just this hobby. Let's be honest. The, the personal connections, social media has gotten us away from that. You know, oh, where yeah. it's you have very few friends, but you have thousands of acquaintances, you know, and it's 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 like that here. It's like that in, in real life, you know, it's not just in the hobby. It's unfortunate that, that causes. I mean, there's it's weird. There's people that, you know, I went to school with. I haven't seen them since I graduated over 20 years ago, but I know what their kids look like that are 16 years old because I've watched them grow up and, you know, you feel like, you know, someone when I've never even spoke to these people. So it's, it's, it's weird what social media has done to us as a group. Um, and I, I see that influence in the hobby, but I think you're absolutely right that, you know, some of the, the relationships we've, we have made, you know, 
kind of stand the time, you know, stand the test of time yeah. and, and really make it, make it something nice. So, um, and you know, it, since this is that episode, we just get to go on whatever tangents we want to, right? I talked about morph market and it's so people have asked me several times and about morph market and, you know, the changes being made and you see a lot of, uh, a lot of bickering, you know, on that'll be, that'll be a word I'll use that, you know, we'll say bickering. Um, and, you know, for those who ask, I'll, I'll just kind of put it right down the line here. I typically try to walk the most middle ground, logical approach in any dispute, debate, argument, or topic. Just what is, you know, makes the most sense. And um, for... A lot of the individuals I've seen that have, that have argued with Darian, the owner, I, I like Darian. Darian and I, we, we chat back and forth. Um, I get along fine with him. I do not agree with everything that he, he's changed. Um, I I see his vision. I see where he's trying to go with some things. I just don't always agree with the approach. Um, so f- just for the record, I like Mork Market. And there's also a lot of the guys I've seen that, have argued with Darian. I like them too. I, I get along with both, right? Um, the pictures, you know, that you brought up, Matt, I, I had commented when that first came, you know, when that was first mentioned that they were looking at doing that, my exact comment was, I am not taking a picture of every single leucistic Texas rat snake that I post. It's not happening. And, you know, while that's, the sentiment I have, I also understand the sentiment of, you know, trying to, I don't want to say certain businesses, but we know who some of these businesses are using representative, you know, representation photos that you're not representing a damn thing that you're sending out. Let's be yeah. honest, you know. Um, so I get where he, what he's trying to clean up. I, I really do. My thought is, I think really the middle ground where. I don't feel that we need to hold the public's hand step by step in a situation like this Um, because there was the same debate when they were labeling the imports, the wild caught, you know, that thing. I don't feel there needs to be warnings just clearly labeled and let the individual make their decisions. So in my opinion, does an actual photo make it more likely for an animal to sell? Absolutely. You know, 100%. I don't think anybody can really argue against that. But instead of making it a requirement, just clearly label the photo. You know, put a a tag right there on the photo that says in big letters, representation, you know, photo, representative photo, and let the public decide whether or not they're comfortable with that and making that purchase rather than completely, you know, changing the dynamic of how we post. And, and I, I just think that there are, there are ways to, to make his vision happen without such dramatic changes on the end of everybody who's using the system, if that makes sense. So it makes sense. Um, as somebody who does not have a morph market account and is a morph market consumer, and was on Morph Market yesterday because I'm breathing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
I have barely followed the morph market thing because I I'm not engaged there. I just use it as a way to, you know, get a king snake or two. And I was on there uh looking, you know, basically going through the king snakes and such, and it did say like representative photo and um import and I'm I don't mean to like start a fire, but I as the consumer, I was kind of like, okay, I get it. You know, at the same time, I don't know how to say this and not – you can kind of tell when when there's a picture of a king snake and then it says I've got 3.2, but there's only one king snake. As long as you are capable of basic math, you know there's more snakes. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I – so I, I don't – I mean, I don't know. I totally understand where it could be a royal pain in the ass of having – you got Mexican black kings, which are black snakes. It, it, it's funny. It's so funny that you say that, though. Like that one, I'll disagree with. That really? One, you, yes. It, it, it's it, and again, I, I knew well, it. I knew cool. that one to get brought up. So because as someone who who breeds and sells a hell of a lot of Mexican black kings, because I, I just had this conversation with our animal uh, animal care specialist here. Mm-hmm. Um. I said, no, that's actually one that I do have to take individual photos of. And it's because the consumer, those who want MBKs, they want to know how much white speckling I could see is that. on those MBKs. They want to, I mean, if you don't, if you don't have the right angle, I'm going to get asked. And I know it, it part of me wants to go look as an adult, <laughs> it's going to look the same. Even the ones that hatch out looking like desert Kings Yep. are going to be black, you know, whenever they're adults. Um, but I, I've learned, yes, you know, with MBKs, I actually do have to take individual pictures. Um, you, you probably don't, but I guarantee I sell more of them than the people that use representative, you know, photos on there. Um, but, you know, then you go to things like the Lucy Texas Rats and pff, I could send yeah. you one out of 100 and you, you're not going to be able to pick the picture you know, it, it's not going to work like that. So, so there's some, yes, but that's what I'm saying is, you know, MBKs would be a prime example of just put the label on it and then let the consumer decide whether they're cool with getting any Mexican black king or no, I want to see the exact one I'm getting. And they'll pick their buyer. I'm sorry. They'll pick their seller based off of that. Based you know? on that. Yeah. yeah. So now, and I'll give, I will give Darian credit. He didn't make every category fall under those rules. And I think, you know, some of that was some of the feedback that he was given. Um, and I know that, I mean, some of the categories that he locked in were specifically to weed out some of the less than stellar sellers. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, I'm going to say that I don't have a problem with weeding out the less than stellar sellers. No, no. They need weeded out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I go to a, a herb show anymore, because I, I, I've gotten to the point where I've, I've realized that it's better to have as fresh a frozen pinky as I can get to get these little bastards to eat. Um, and this is my first year even remotely coming close to you two because – I just bred large quantities of false water cobras that'll eat your freaking thumb if it smells like a frog, uh, and they start on a fuzzy. Like this, <laughs> dealing with these baby king snakes makes me want to play in traffic. 
at, at like five five o'clock in the afternoon. But anywho, <laughs> um, so getting the fresh stock means that I've been going to my local show, and you know I the show that I go to monthly to get the feeders is basically eighty percent imports, and um, I got to get in and I got to get out. Like I drive an hour and a half, I spend maybe fifteen minutes in the show to get the pinkies because I'm probably going to get in a fight. Like that's, what <laughs> uh, I know me too. Well, um, I'm not being dramatic. I have, I think I've said this on the show before, literally said to somebody, you're giving me that baby snake. You don't know how to take care of it. Do it, you know? <laughs> uh, and they did. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't want that being the face of herpetoculture in the private mm-hmm. sector. It, it has, I, I'm not saying I'm anti wild caught. There are people that do it right, okay? Mm-hmm. But if you've got a table and it's it's full of file snakes from Africa that are loaded with worms that are the length of that snake, um, and you've done nothing to help them, and you're just flipping them mm-hmm. for 100 bucks. Like I was at Schomburg, and uh, Schomburg was wonderful. It was like the good side. But there were the, – uh, the file snake came to mind because that's literally what it was. It was a skeleton – with skin on it that was barely alive. And the, the guy that, that was selling that snake didn't have any other colubrids at all. Uh, and I was just kind of like, what the hell? Like, like the snake, I would have literally put, bought it to put it down. Like, that's where it was. Um, we don't need that shit. I don't mm-hmm. want to see that shit. And if there's anything being done to eliminate that, it's only going to help us so that the people that are focusing on breeding, preserving, doing the good, you know, doing the Lord's work so we can have these things as captive lines and limit that, that wild caught pressure. That's, that's the side that I want to lift up and celebrate and I'll do anything I can to get rid of the other part. of it. Yeah. The hard part with that comment though, Zach and um, Clint, you probably see it more on a pet store basis though, is it's affordability. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's mm-hmm. the one thing. And that's the reason why some of that still stays around in the hobby, you know, um, some of these importers, exporters, people that they um, all across the internet name drop is like, oh, this is a bad person, bad person, blah, blah, blah. Some of those people are just brutally honest and like, no, this is a wild caught animal. You know, mm-hmm. you're getting yeah. what you're getting. But do you want to pay 300 bucks from Matt for a file snake or do you want to pay $50 from this wild caught? And I have been blown away with how many people go the $50 way email me and say the snake's not feeding what <laughs> issues should they look at i mean point in case i mean two weeks ago i received an email from someone that actually thanked me for a response related to parasites in a file snake and they blatantly said yeah you were 100 percent right they had lung worms and lung flukes and all this stuff and i was like yeah i'm not making this stuff up like mm-hmm. that's the truth mm-hmm. but i the hard part and and i think this is where my sentiment even comes from even from um, my earlier comments about not only morph market, but any like, you know, online posting for animals is we've really become, and it's really become like the kitchen store. Right. I mean, I remember even um, talking with people that have written books, um, things of that nature. And, you know, one of the hardest parts, I think that when you do publish a book and Zach, you're, 
you know, obviously with your new publication now, the hardest part is people think of that as an ordering catalog. Um, even working with Kevin Messenger with the Asiatic Rat Snakes, mm-hmm. I was blown away how many people contacted me asking if they could buy, you know, litters of animals from this pairing or this pairing, you know, just off the pictures. And would even reference like the page number of, <laughs> yeah. from, from Kevin's. And, you know, you start to like, are we in a grocery store or are we trying to advance ourselves as a hobby? Um, and even more so, I mean, as a breeder or professional breeder, you know, we want to be pushing ourselves to the edge, right? I mean, that's why even, you know, Clint, over the years, he's struggled with Volanti because he doesn't know how to take care of any Asian rat snakes. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the reality of it is, is that's something we should strive for. I mean, we always want to be pushing ourselves to the limit of like that care, that professional trying new species. Um, but we can't take into account some of these as, you know, going to a grocery store and picking out a watermelon and knocking on it to see which one has mm-hmm. the best. Um, you know, when we had Chad Fuchan, um, you know, Chad talked about it. I mean, and I, I certainly go about this too. I don't care what the animal looks like. What's the best feeding animal out of yeah. that club? That's, that's my question every time. Yeah. You could, whatever, even the white specklings on that Mexican black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. um, but I mean, those are genetic traits that sometimes will pass on, you know, because one of the hard parts I think too in the hobby and, and we've talked about this with other episodes is sometimes if an animal's not feeding, it's not best to start force feeding the animal. Um, no. because all you're doing is, I mean, in this, right. I mean, this is, this is like raising livestock. If you really think it's farming, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And, and you really want the best traits just continuously going on and the best bloodlines being recreated I mean, that's why, you know, even for tricolor hogs, I get all these inquiries lately about tricolors. And one of the most interesting things I get up from it, though, is everyone saying no one's having success this year with tricolors. And I'm not even pairing mine and I'm getting clutches every month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that a better stock animal? Did other people buy stuff? And I mean, even when we um, had the episode with uh, Kathy Love, um, you know, talking about that, I mean, we, we've probably pushed some animals in this hobby longer than what they should because of the fact that we've probably promoted bad breeding behaviors and bad bloodlines to persist in the hobby. Yeah, I could say I had mm-hmm. a bad bloodline of tricolor hognose snakes, but they are now extinct <laughs> because <laughs> none, of the, none of the babies lived and I... I um, gave the female to one person and the male to another person. I, I broke up the pair because when I was writing that book, I thought like somehow I stumbled on the nightmare pair and I don't want these things coming back together again. Like it's, it's not worth it. And and I can say tricolors are a great example of that, Matt, because like the I'm looking right over where yours are. The two that you the pair that you gave me last spring are doing great yeah. um, and they've never missed a meal. And the, the, the tricolors I created never ate a meal. <laughs> so, you know, um, and I really do honestly believe that there's a line element with the with the genetics. And it, it it's not that, like, they had the genetics to eat. Everything eats. Right. But they might have a genetic disposition to feed more readily on rodents. 
and mine mm-hmm. might have had a genetic disposition to feed more readily on um, squamate eggs, which is actually something they eat in the wild that most people don't realize is their lizard egg eaters. Uh, and so if, if, if my line is the one that wants to do the squamate eggs, I'm not going to shove mouse tails and all that crap and, and get it to the point where it wants to eat. I think it is the responsible thing mm-hmm. to just kind of let them go. And I didn't kill the adults, which ate mice like crazy. I just right. broke the pair up to make sure we're not um, – I didn't want them to breed. I didn't want somebody else to go through the hellscape that I went through with them because they were not fun. But now I'm getting ready. Yours will be ready next year. Maybe I'll have some fun. There you go. <laughs> so, anyway. No, cool. No, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, 100%. I think that it's – there's very few situations where I feel that we should go to those extremes to get an animal to feed. You yeah. know, it's now if it's if it's a new species that we're trying to get established in the hobby, we're trying to figure out, you know, maybe. But I can I can tell you now and I think we've all kind of said this at some point on the, the show. If a baby doesn't eat here. It, it doesn't eat. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm going to try the tricks. I'm going to try the different, you know, methods, the sinning, the you know, braining, the boil, the this, the that, but I'm not going to push it down your throat. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it doesn't have the will to, to eat and now given at the same time, I'm not really working at the moment with anything that shouldn't eat, you know, nothing. So it's the worst is going to be the gray bands. And yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm still not going to force feed them, but um, I'll work with the lizards. I'll get all that going. But I mean, there anything I have has been in captivity long enough and the line's, you know, prevalent enough, it should eat. Yeah. So if it doesn't, yeah. it's it's just not gonna make it. So Yeah. And then that's when you introduce it once it's passed on to a king snake. Uh-huh. He mm-hmm. will gladly eat it. Yeah. And then get triggered to only eat snakes. <laughs> you know i've never had that happen any of my kings that will eat a snake oh. will eat any damn thing i put in there so yeah I, i've not had it happen speaking of kings eating snakes <laughs> i have a, a story for everybody real quick so i got home from a trip and i i, I walk into my room and um one of the things we're gonna we all have a question that we're gonna pose here in a minute and, and we're going to end. And this kind of deals with my one of the questions I, we may, I might ask. But I walked in the room and I just had that like, boom, I didn't I've spent so much time in that space that I was like, something's wrong. Like immediately hair on the back of your neck goes up. Something is wrong. And I did my scan and I noticed that the one rack, every tub was pushed out. Just my tubs go an inch deep and they were all an inch out. And I thought, uh, and the only thing that will do that is either a ghost or there's a snake loose in the room. <laughs> and um, I then immediately went to my vivs because uh, basically the grow outs are in the tub. And then uh, I keep some of my hogno snakes in the tub. And I looked over and sure enough, one of my Brooks Kings had somehow managed to shove her head between the glass pane on the vivarium and the lip of the vivarium and wiggle it open enough for her to get out. And so now I know exactly what has caused all the tubs to bump out. So I'm slowly but surely pushing the tubs back. And as I'm pushing the tubs back, I go to push one tub and it's not going back. And it's the one that was open the most. 
And I had peeked in there in my male, uh, ha- just a normal Plains hognose snake was not in the tub. And there's a king snake loose. So I did this like math problem of, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and then I pull the tub out. And sure enough, there is the damn Brooks King. And it has completely constricted the male hognose snake. Uh, and it has its head a third of the way down its mouth. Um, and I pulled them all out. And the king snake was basically like, oh, hell no, you're not getting this back. The hognose snake was already dead. So I have now had probably the only predation event in the history of time where a South Florida king snake has eaten a Plains hognose snake in West Virginia. Like, put all that together. And I was freaking, I was pissed. I sent these to a video uh, and some <laughs> other people the video. And then I was like, well, I mean, he's the, the snake's dead. I'm not going to let it go to waste. So I put her back into her vivarium, and then she proceeded to consume the hognose snake, mm-hmm. and I just sat on the couch and drank a beer. Like, that's basically the only thing I could do in, in honor of the damn hog. So be careful with your king snakes. Um, Justin Smith with um, Herpetoculture Podcast. I'm in a chat group with them, and I sent them the picture too. And then he, like, immediately just sent Mithrapeltis because he <laughs> calls them Mithrapeltis because they act like they're all in meth. And that's basically, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it was like living proof of that, but goddamn. That was that sucked. I'm just not gonna. I raised that little hog from the time it hatched from an egg, and it sat. These guys can see right here on my deck. Like every single day oh. when I was at work, I saw that snake. So that sucks. Yeah. Well, I, I, I told you I had the same thing happen, where a Mexican black king baby figured out a way to get its tub pushed open. This was a few years back. And so I come in, I see that tub open, and then a few uh, rows down, I see another tub, a cockside tub, open. <laughs> Both snakes gone. I'm like, man. Well, I go through, and this is like a 96-slot baby rack. So, I mean, just tons. Well, I'm going through, cleaning each, cleaning each. And finally, inevitably, it's – I don't know about you, but anytime I've had a snake loose that I find in a rack, the way I find it is when I'm trying to put a tub in and it yeah. won't go all the way in. That's, that's I, what I did. I, yeah, and you're like, oh, there you are. Yeah. So did that, and I pull out this Mexican black king that looked like a stuffed sausage. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just, it just – it was going to explode where it had eaten that damn cocci. And I'm like, the most expensive meal on this rack <laughs> system, you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so was not happy. But uh, just today, I <laughs> I got lucky. I got real lucky. So – because this wouldn't have only been a, a a death and a meal, but it would have been messy and it would have been visible. So, <laughs> I uh, we have sriracha. Sriracha is our um, high red bearded dragon, big old boy. Everybody loves him. I take him out to the schools and all this. Um, he, but he's he's a full grown adult male bearded dragon, and he's on the showroom floor in his. He really doesn't have a cage. He has a, I think it's about seven or eight feet by three feet with walls that come up about three feet high, uh, three and a half feet high. So he's full open. So everybody can walk up and see he's got a big tree in there. Last week he climbed his tree and on the next to it is a about an eight foot by eight foot uh, pin for tortoises. 
and he climbed his tree and he's just sitting on the log in the tortoise cage. So that was hilarious. I loved it. But anyways, he's in his cage in the spot. He's always hanging out under his heat lamp. And we have customers in the store and a customer says, is there supposed to be a king snake in there? And I go, do what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there, th- there's a king snake in there. And my first thought was, okay, we've got a wild king snake in here. Because, again, I've got eastern black kings all around yeah. the building. I just had a, a big skink run across the floor in front of me in the cricket room. He's in there living his best life. <laughs> and <laughs> so I walk up and no, it's a, a mosaic uh, California king that's maybe about – 14 inches and it is laying next to Sriracha under the heat lamp. Uh, and I'm just thinking, Oh, cause beardies don't like snakes. They don't usually mm-hmm. react real well to them. And as big as he is, if he'd went to town on that, it would have been a mess. It would have been <laughs> yeah. right there in front in of the front customers. Of <laughs> yes. And I didn't even know this thing was out. And I went and I figured out how it got out. There was a, a thing broke, you know, on and where it could kind of push this lip up on its uh. Uh, cage. But yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> hoo, hoo, yeah. I mean? <laughs> wipe the brow, put yep. this thing up and, and, and go about the day. So, <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, well, you guys all have animals that eat each other. I guess the only escapee that I encountered was a, a Dion male trying to get into a female's cage during breeding season. And that snake was missing for days. And all of a sudden, I'm down in the basement. I'm like, what the hell is that thing? And it's the male just trying to get in the female cage. That's wild. Yeah. Fairmouths for the win. (laughs) (laughs) So anything new with your season, Matt? Is it You you, you mentioned you moved a lot of animals, but was there anything that you worked with this year that you, you might want to talk about or no? Well, so, you know, responsibly, I didn't pair up everything this year either. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it was just for my mental sanity. Um, so a lot of species, you know, I, I didn't even bother breeding. Um, and also with the weird winter season, you know, I, I mentioned to Clint just the the other weekend. I mean, I still have stuff that's laying its first clutch. Like I've had a couple of corn snakes laid their first clutch this year, like just like in a week ago which seems rather late in the season for some of that. Um, but, you know, for some of it, it was just time related. And, you know, Clint mentioned this before when we first had him on the show too as well. You know, sometimes when you're traveling and working like that, you do miss visual cues. You miss ovulations. Um, now, I'm someone that, like, pairs up everything and just leaves it paired up except to feed. But, you know, with the weird weather cycle we had, um, I still have stuff going, but, you know, I made a post a while back this year. I'm not going to breed as much. And and part of it is just because time, time commitment. Um, I mean, like I mentioned, Clint got a box today with over 60 snakes inside of it. And it's a good thing that we have that relationship because I just don't have the time to really work with all 60 of those hatchlings and get them going and, and cleaning and everything like that. Um, but you know, this year I didn't breed Mullendorfi, um, which is unfortunate. They're, they still are one of my favorite species. I didn't breed any file snakes this year just because um, I didn't want to pair up anything and leave paired up. And so I didn't pr- produce any of those. Um, 
Kurt, who works with some of the Russian rats that I have with him. He produced some of those um, and even some of the Climacophora. But, you know, some stuff I didn't pair up. I didn't pair up red and black snakes this year. The African species, the hatch out with the mm-hmm. white head, for those unfamiliar. Um, I, I didn't push it with Coxi, Volanti, uh, Conspicillatus. Um, some of them I didn't breed this year. I just let them off for the whole season. The one thing that I actually had a lot of fun with this year was personal projects with corn snakes. Nice. Um, which is like the most random one. But, you know, I had some projects um, related with scaleless animals that I wanted to prove out and play with. Um, I, I hatched out today um, a scaleless super salmon coral scaleless animal, which looks wicked. Um, and Clint's seen him the progeny from it but like i mean some of those animals i remember when i showed clint he goes what is that thing because it's bright pink Mm. um not just like the salmon corals you see out now but um you know one of the coolest things i produced this year was a new species for myself which were the uh drymacon rubidus um and you know it was my first year breeding them my adults are only three years old they came from stan grumbeck um, I had two eggs, one went bad and hatched out a male. And that to me was like one of the coolest things for me this year for breeding animals. That's, that is exactly it right there. So, uh, I think it was the last episode when we we're giving updates and I mentioned, you know, hatched out a, a world's first ball Python morph. And I'm like, it's cool, but it just doesn't get me as excited as checking off a new species that even if people, you know, produce hundreds of thousands of them every year, if I've never done it. Right. But now I did, you know, that, that is such a big win. So man, kudos to you, Matt, because that makes me feel so good, you know, getting to add another species to the list another species successfully, you know, uh, reproduced here. And, I also I want to kind of chime in on the corn snakes as well because that's something that it, it's funny how cyclical we can be. No, you know no. where you, you get into something, you get out of something, you miss it, you get back in, you, you know all this. So you know you're talking about doing some of these corn snake projects and expanding those. I kid you not, I just added and. I can think there's only two species that I actually added animals to the collection that I didn't really have before so far this year. Hognose. Mm -hmm. I've I've now got some hognose that I've held back and I'm getting more. But um, I think I just put about nine or 12 corn snakes that I I, I got a hold of them. And I'm, I'm man, some candy canes. Some can- like true candy canes. You just I don't see them that often, you know. Um, candy cane tesseras, some nice striped reverse okatees. Um, the what else? Uh, there's some anery tesseras back. there. just I, I. It's been so long since I've been so excited for corn snakes, <laughs> but I freaking love them. I'm like man, and it was. And again, you think about everything we work with, right? And the people that. It, 
they, they get, they hear us on, on here, they see us online and they see the mandarins, you know, that Matt posts, the green bush rat snakes that I'll post, things like that. And today I'm taking pictures of snakes to post, you know, on the website and all these beautiful snakes and all these different species I'm photographing. I holler, Steve, hey, Steve, come here. Come look at this snake. And what was it? It was a corn snake that I want. I'm like, look how good looking this thing is, man. He's like, it is good looking. I'm like, I'm holding some back. I'm going to go look at the holdbacks. I want to make sure the holdbacks at least look this good because otherwise I'm holding this one back. (laughs) But that's what I called him from two rooms over to come look at, come check out this corn snake. You know, so it's, I guess, never get too big for your britches, people. You know, it's. It, it still enjoy it. If you get to a point where, you know, you see a a head popping out of an egg and that doesn't bring you joy, don't breed anymore. You know, don't breed anymore. So just little things like that. It's makes me feel like a kid again. <laughs> yep. I mean, I did all the king snakes. I had that crazy collection of Asiatic rat snakes that hated my house. <laughs> I was just like, nope. Um, I got to get something that's that's that I'm not stressing out about here, but I can still nerd out about. And I didn't understand how much I liked locality. It takes my, my natural history slash professional world and merges it directly with herpetoculture. But, but for me, it was the Pasco County Florida Kings. Cause that's a really rare locality for them. And I knew a couple people that tried to get them to go this year and they didn't go. And I got them to go. The eggs looked horrible, absolutely horrible. Uh, but all of them hatched. And when their little heads were popping out, my wife was like, what is going on down there? (laughs) You know, I didn't think those eggs had a hope or a prayer. They were that ugly and the babies came out perfect. So, yeah, but I mean, it's freaking king snake. You know, it's it's, that's it for me. I Mm -hmm. I've gone back to basics. Hardcore. Um, Absolutely. Very, very cool. Um, well, and I mean, that really is like the whole focus of this whole hobby. You have to be happy with what you have, what you're keeping. Um, you know, too often, you know, you see people come in and out of this hobby because they chase it for the wrong reason. I mean, it's even right now, you know, for some breeders, they're saying it's slow, right? In terms of selling animals, things of that nature. And they're selling their whole collection now. We, we, you see it so cyclical in so many different aspects, but was that person in it for the right reasons to begin with, you know? And I mean, mm-hmm. even to throw out my question, I mean, for you, Clint, if you could go back again, what do you wish you would actually want to change in what you know now to actually promote success in the hobby for yourself? <clears throat> Meaning as far as like from, from this retail adventure, is retail that or adventure. just, yeah. And, and for Zach, it'd be more of as a hobbyist. If I was going to go back and change something and set myself up better, I would probably say from a overall species piece, I, I think that I came into it fairly strong. I mean, while I had to adapt to the, the local market with ball pythons and I had to grow into the, that, I guess that's, that is what I would change. Let's, and I'm, I'm going to use that because that, that's, that's true. 
what I would have changed was I wouldn't have boxed myself in so much on my categories, right? Now, I'm, I'm broad because I, I keep a lot of different colubrids. And I, of course, I still had some ball pythons, but lizards just weren't cool enough for me. Now, I think that maybe I didn't expand into things like, you know, the different lizard species or tortoises or even frogs. I had them here and there over the years, but it was probably because of the job I had. It was probably because of how busy I was. You can be on the road four days a week and maintain a decent sized snake collection. You can't maintain lizards when you're gone four days a week. You know what I mean? They they require more routine feeding, more routine care, things like that. So I would have loved to have been better prepared with species outside of what I'm what I'd been working with um, going into this. That's what I would have changed is I would have broadened my horizons even more. And it's funny because it's what I tell people all the time here that come in and that are into the ball pythons real heavy come into colubrids, it makes you a better keeper. Now that part rings true a hundred percent. And I think that because of all the experience I've had with those species, it made learning chameleons a lot easier. It made learning monitors a lot easier. It made learning dart frogs a lot easier because I wasn't just used to, a, you know, this animal that sits in the corner and does nothing you know, all day, the different requirements, the humidity, the temps, the, you know, the nuance. So that's what I would change is I would have given myself a little more general experience than, you know, so heavy into what I was in. Yeah. I guess it's me now. It is. Um, so I'm going to go, I'm going to answer this because if you re remember, my history in herpetoculture is like did it all through high school, through the late 90s, all through college, early 2000s. Then I bounced doing it hardcore in like 04, 05. And then Zeusai came back 2016. In 2015, really, I came back with a vengeance. And so I'm going to go with like the mindset I had in 2015 versus the mindset I have right now in 2023. So eight years later. Um on the private side, not necessarily the academic professional side that I dwell in. Uh, I would say that if I could talk to myself back then, it would have been, I would have told myself to lighten up. I took it. I, I came in and I looked like when I was in it in college and everything, racks existed. I knew what racks were. They were melamine. Um, I didn't really have an opinion of a rack. Uh, I had, I, I didn't care. I cared about animals and I wanted to have the animals. And when I came back in, I came back in with herpetoculture and care. And there's going to be some listeners that are going to hear this and lose their minds. So just listen to the whole story, please, before <laughs> you lose your minds. But I came in and I was like, racks are the devil. You've got to keep everything in enclosures. There's no room for that. Everything needs to have like tip top husbandry at, on all parameters. Um, Less is more, and that I can't keep – if I'm going to take this seriously and this is going to represent me professionally as a hobby, I can't be keeping Petco species is the way that I tell my students. So like your standard issue, corn snake, Cali King, 
leopard mm-hmm. gecko, even though ironically, when I got back in to all of this, the species that I got back into herpetoculture with were crested geckos. Um, but I was keeping crested geckos in like fully decked out exoterras with UVB radiation and misting systems. I mean, it was like everything. And there was no room for anything less than that. And then I started like segueing over into the, the side of this where I understood I, I uh, wasn't conservation. I'm not saying it was conservation. It was preservation, which are different. <clears throat> there were lines of snakes that I thought were really interesting. And I knew that I wanted to breed those snakes. And I knew that if I wanted to breed those snakes, I was going to need temporary housing for those snakes. That was not going to necessarily be a vivarium. And, you know, then I struggled with the whole, well, am I going to get a rack? I don't want to get a rack. Racks are bad. Racks are the devil. And then I thought, I'm going to get a rack. And then I actually, like, saw the utility of a rack. And then I understood that if you go into this, and this is the moral of the story, kids. (laughs) If you go into this and say, this entire part of herpetoculture is crap and garbage and serves no purpose, you are, and you blacklist it, you invariably are taking that blacklist and extending it onto the people that utilize that method. And you're making yourself insanely close-minded. And when you're close-minded, your community is going to be much smaller (laughs) than what it could be if you're open-minded and you actually look at it. Now, do I keep things in like racks at, at a personal level? No, I don't, but I also do like, it just depends. I got out of, um, personally, because I have a small collection that lives at my house. One of the things that kind of moved me away from some of the North American rat snakes was I didn't like keeping them in a tub because I saw them kind of bumping their heads all the time, trying to go up. And I'm a biologist. I know what they're, why they're going up. They live up there. So I moved rat snakes out, learned about king snakes, brought king snakes in. With the king snakes at the house, I have that rotation that I keep them on where everybody lives half the year in a vivarium and everybody lives half the year in a rack. And by me doing that, I can maintain enough animals, breeding stock with these localities that are rare, to preserve them, the preservation part. So we have a small contribution of Pasco County, uh, Hernando County, Dade County, um, locality level snakes going out into the private sector uh, and they're not going to die you know die meaning that i'm contributing to their maintenance and herpetoculture which we've already talked about today um but i'm able to kind of give the snakes the enrichment that they want and i got them in the racks there's some people that are going to be like that's great there's other people going to be like that's awful um you know you're not giving them uvb da, 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 da. and and I, it is what it is but i'm i'm doing what i can here but 2015 Zach would have basically been like, no, this isn't okay. (laughs) And I think that when in in 2023, Zach's matured through experience, because when you get experience, you gain this little doodad we call wisdom. And the wisdom I have learned is that not as much as people don't want to hear it. There are actually individual snakes that want to live in a damn rack. I I have a water Python. Um, My son has named her, her Kyla after her friend's mother that hates him. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's hysterical because <laughs> this water python wants to kill everything that moves. Um, but you know, we've tried putting him in a f- that female water python. Here we got it was a university snake. It was in a four by two, smashed its head off the glass every freaking opportunity it got. 
We papered the glass, still smashed its head off the glass. We put it in another, you know, a vivarium that we had um, a, a PVC door for or something to that effect. Still smashed its head off the glass. Uh, brought it home because it was biting too many students. Um, and I, I did the same thing at home. I thought it's going to live in the garage. I am the only person that's down there. That foot traffic's going to drop it. Still smashed its head off the glass. Put it in a freaking CB70 vision tub. Doesn't smash its head off the glass anymore. Eats, has grown. It's like, like there's just something about that. Now, do I think you keep every water python that way? No. But this one individual, I don't care what, I've done everything I can to, to, to set it up differently. Um, I even put it in a um, Freedom, Beater, Freedom Breeder 90 tub with the window. So it still has a tub. Or sorry, you know, it's in a tub, but it's got more of a window for light. Smash its head off the freaking plastic every time we walk by. It just wants, it doesn't like it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what I would have done, is that I would have, like, taken a step back and, and like, interpreted things for myself instead of reading what people were saying and then joining a tribe. And one of the things is, like, I feel like I'm doing penance for that year of my life by doing the podcast, by talking about, you know, this stuff, by going on other people's podcasts, telling all these same stories. But at the same time, I, you know, when you get these animals as a long-term pet, you should absolutely set them up in the, in the enclosure that they, you know, gives them the best amount of enrichment. So I'm kind of like 60-40 split when it comes to my care. And now that I'm doing things this way, I'm having a lot more success. My animals are, are thriving, and it, it actually has made me a much better keeper because I let the animals tell me what they want instead of me telling them what they want. Um, and, and mm-hmm. you know, that's the way that I like to keep, and that's what led to the nuance that we always talk about on here because you know now I'm able to read a snake much better than I could before. And I realized that by putting some of those animals in the great big decked-out Viv um, – they were perfectly happy in there because they were in their cork tube all the time. And if you're in the cork tube all the time and you're not using all the light and the radiation and da 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 maybe you want a more secretive environment for you to dwell in. And, and unfortunately, there are people that when they hear that are like, no, you're full of it. You're doing that out of economy of time, economy of space, economy of this, economy of that. I'm doing it because the freaking snake is telling me. Mm-hmm. I'm not utilizing all the space and then you get hit with like, well, you denied it the space. How do you know it's not like, so I just, <laughs> I can't stand all that. Like I, 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 but at the same time, it goes the other way to end this rant because there's also people that will say, well, you know, you keep them in a tub all the time because they don't need all that extra shit. And I don't think that's true either. <laughs> um, I, I think that like each species has its own care care characters and we as the herpetoculturalists have to read those um those those characters like false water cobras my my species i will die on this hill um adults should not be kept in racks the end done they need a big massive vivaria they also should be given actual roaming time the way you with a tegu or a monitor uh, my office ugh. I let those eight foot females roam this office I'm sitting in and I've got all kinds of crap on bookshelves and (laughs) things on walls. It sounds like there's a bomb going off in here. And that's just, 
that's the cross I bear if I'm going to keep the eight-foot water cobras is they're going to destroy the office and a picture frame might get broken. They've taken out five, by the way, in the past four years. <laughs> I, started, I replaced it all with plexiglass, so they're, we're good now. Um, <laughs> but You, you know, continue to learn, Zach. Yeah, See? I continue you to learn. <laughs> uh, but, but that's what it would have been, is to lighten up and um, – See both sides of an argument and then take the good from each and be and evolve into a better keeper. That's good. That's good. You, I, I'll tell you what, Zach. Well, is there anything that you want to add to that, Matt? Because your your answer there just kind of takes me right into the question I want to ask. But yeah, I mean, the um, for me personally, my biggest thing would have not to been to grow as fast as what I did. Mm-hmm. As, as a personal, um, you know, I've always enjoyed working with all the Asiatic European rat snakes. And that's really what my name's out there for. But one of the things, and I've made this suggestion to some of the younger keepers and I've got my Rob stone wipe t-shirt back here because he continues (laughs) to be on some of our messages as, as group. And Man, love Justin, but man, that guy really does suck up to Rob Stone. Justin, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, yep. you know, you know, Rob and I have talked on this a couple of times, just you know, inter like phone call here and there. The one thing I think I would do if I could take things and start back over is I would focus on one species and just knock it out of the park. Um, you know, and it's something Clint and I have talked about even too, because I'm holding back a number of Vietnamese mandarins and things like that. And I'm really pushing some of that. I wouldn't be surprised in the next five years, if you see my collection change and evolve to something that's very different. And, but to do it at this level, not here and just kind of just kill it um, for personal growth. And really just to kind of create the best things out there that are not out there. Nice. I, I like that. I, I, yeah. I, I'm kind of doing that right now with the falsies. I know exactly what you're talking about. Because most water cobras are like keeping snakes and horse. Or sorry, the closest thing to a snake horse because they're not small. And they're active. as They're very active. And I've definitely freed up space in the garage that was... There were some racks there, and they went, and the snakes in the racks went, and I got put more PVC enclosures and blah blah So, yeah, no. It just feels better when you do that because you kind of have, like, your identity, and you've got goals, and there's a familiarity there, but you can push yourself. I know, yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I, I think that the, the Carinata are kind of like my – my preparation for the falsies at this point. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. That's if, why if you took I feel Karen, ready. <laughs> you took a Carinata and a dry market and put them together and the power of the craft <laughs> that those two things could make in one. That's false water. Cobra. Mm-hmm. Right on. Go well, that's fun. one species. I would not keep only dry market. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know what Messy. I keep buying and I know what I clean. So, yeah. <laughs> Yep. Very Funny. cool. All right, gentlemen. So I want to ask you, and you talking about the, you know, the kind of the tribes and, you know, I know we've talked about the issues with, within the hobby, right? My question to you guys are what do you feel is one of, or the biggest, let's call it threat to our hobby that <laughs> isn't being talked about? 
Oh, okay. I, I can lead on this one. If that's okay. Yeah. Because I have the, I have a perspective that I've, I've talked about it and I've hinted about it. I, I, I dove deep in on it with the when I was on the Project Herpeticulture podcast and, and Phil, who's the host, was like, oh, my God, nobody's willing to say that. I It's something that we talk about, but I don't think we truly understand the interpretation of it. So what I would say it is, is um, the pers- – how do I word this? The, the perception of private herpeticulture within the agencies that are making the rules, that they get vilified a lot. And there are definitely things that they have done that were really dumb. Okay? But I know those biologists well. I, I am, like, I am one of them. I sat on West Virginia's herp council or board when they were doing the regulations there and they go to the interweb to get their kind of perception of what exactly private herpeticulture is and the loudest voice in the room is the voice that is heard and if we as a community are literally ripping ourselves to shreds on social media that's not good if we as a community are getting together in public spaces and running around on stages with giant stuffed penises <laughs> and uh, at an auction that represents us and we're all hooting and hollering, how in God's green earth is any professional agency going to look at that and take that group of people seriously? No, I you nailed it. Yeah. I don't understand it. You know, we're talking about people, whether we like it or not. I'm not saying I agree with what they're saying. I'm, I'm a scientist here, peeps. So I'm talking about the, the factual, the perception that the people are consuming about us. That's that's what we, we you, you have to, like, admit this perception. And it is basically that these people take this seriously, but they're emotionally reactive and they don't necessarily really take this stuff overly serious. Um, and I'm not saying everybody perceives us that way. They certainly do not. But there are people perceiving us that way because of our own actions. And it's like literally lighting ourselves on fire. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just the YouTubers that get all the heat that are doing it, even though they're definitely doing it. There's YouTubers that we don't talk about that I have literally had conservation officers or not officers, but professionals say to me, if everybody was like her, we wouldn't have a problem. Um, whether we like it or not, I've had multiple people talk about Emily with Snake Discovery. Like, that's a good image. Uh, you know, people getting bit by random things, using fake hands, getting bit, putting on venomous proof gloves, getting bit. Um <coughs> Doing just really, really, really dumb crap for likes and clicks. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but you're 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 vilifying our community, whether you like it or not. Um, and then mm-hmm. us holding those people up in high regard, that's that's just not okay. And I don't and some I've said this before and I've had people say that I'm being elitist. I'm not being an elitist, I'm being logical, people. <laughs> like, think about the way you consume things. Um, so we just need to like change that level mm-hmm. up a little bit. 
Like, come on. And there's plenty of people that will level up. Uh, I like that. I, there's all kinds of people doing incredibly badass things. And I feel like those, you know, those of us doing that need to have a voice and need mm-hmm. to be, and, and don't be an introvert hiding in your basement with your snakes. Like you can fight it by putting that information out and then the listeners can share that. And then when you share that, yeah, that's what starts to get consumed. Um, but unfortunately, the loudest voice in the room is the one that is heard. And, and I don't like what I'm seeing. Like, I can't be part of that. I, I cannot be part of that. Um, I, 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 I get collecting permits and all this stuff to be a conservation biologist. I have literally had people say to my face, you, you're one of those snake breeders. And I'm like, yeah, I am one of those snake breeders. I'm proud of being a snake breeder. Mm-hmm. But here's what I'm doing. And then I talk about all my friends, what everybody's doing. And I've definitely flipped a couple of them. But what they're getting from YouTube, social media, people sharing, blah, blah, is really dumb stuff. And I think that our – what we are promoting as the fu- – as like as, – as herpetoculture in the United States – Part of it's just not okay. And the community that's entrenched in that, that's sharing that crap is going to be one of the nails in our coffin. Yeah, I agree with you, Zach, entirely. Um, you know, this is something that really pushes me to um, some of the things that I've even said before, even going to shows. I mean, I don't go to shows. And part of it is because when I go to a show, like mentally I feel drained. I'm just like... <laughs> um, now, there are good aspects of it, right? Meeting your friends, enjoying that experience. But what I don't think the average keeper or person that's posting on Facebook realizes that DNR, Fish and Wildlife, all over are, it. Correct. And even for myself, I have DNR and Fish and Wildlife as likes on my page. Are they actually truly liking my page or are they watching and seeing if I'm Mm -hmm. posting something and your average keeper sharing things and even the biggest media personalities and even some of the people that have great followers because they are genuine people and genuinely interested in species themselves. When they share something that might be negative from a keeper that might be keeping animals improperly and just trying to actually spread the word that that person is sharing or keeping things improperly. Well, now you've just shared that message even further with DNR and Fish and Life, another state, everything. And what happens there is it's the collapse of our hobby. We are going to see significant changes in keeping practices and even species that are allowed to keep, you know, even, you know, looking at corn snakes, scaleless corn snakes, as controversial as a subject as that is, if you want to keep scaleless corn snakes and you're in a state that might not allow, just get the permit. You know, the reality of it is, is like, we see so much of this, but we need to follow the laws. You know, it's like, if I, for instance, was going to buy a gun, I, I need to get a permit for the gun. It's just blatantly that simple. Um, you know, and unfortunately, in the world that we're living in, we are our worst enemies. And social media is really the contributing factor because the reality of it is, is <clears throat> it's bragging rights and it's money. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And, yeah. you know, social media itself does have its presence. The YouTube aspect of it does bring in financial gain for people. I get it. Whatever. But we, if you want to destroy your own means of making money as a hobby or as a business, then you really need to think about what is being posted and what your actions are and how that might contribute to a bigger picture here. Because it's not only your income that you could be destroying, it could be everyone's income yeah. from just a quick picture or post. Mm-hmm. And one more thing on that exact same line of thought is um, poaching. <laughs> I want to mm. talk a little bit about poaching. Uh, I've seen some things recently online and I've listened to a couple podcasts and I'm not like most of us are completely anti-poaching as a community. We need to kind of be anti-poaching. Most of these regulations that are coming out are to, are for a resource that we are managing. Right. Um, I, 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 you know, with the Burmese pythons, everybody's like, Oh, they're going out to the Burmese pythons because they're a giant snake. Why don't they go after the cats? I've said this myself. It's hypocritical. Cats do way more than the Burmese pythons. Yeah. Educate yourself about the freaking Burmese pythons. Like what we don't understand, the big threat from a conservation perspective with the pythons, yes, it is horrible. They are eating all the rabbits and the possums. But what people don't understand, like some people do, they carry a parasite called a penistome, which is a crustacean that lives in their lungs. All of the snakes in Florida are not have not evolved to deal with Asiatic penistomes. So when I see Burmese python, I see dead pygmy rattlesnakes. I see dead eastern ra- – or sorry, um, easterns. I see dead corn snakes. I see dead Florida king snakes. Like that penistome is just going. And as those, those pythons go north, they're bringing the penistome with them. The penistome's getting out into the environment, and it's wiping out the snakes. Like, but I don't hear the herp community saying yeah the pythons really are a problem because they are killing the animals we love i hear well they're not really a problem there's this like justification piece there and if you kind of educate yourself a little bit about the whole aspect of the invasion that is that's the problem to me for reptiles is that yeah. at the same time we got regs in west virginia we we were like the wild west in west virginia you could keep anything in West Virginia. And then some herpers started smashing the, the uh, part of the Potomac River where we have wood turtles. And they were taking wood turtles out and giving them, you know, basically sending them to Asia. And we know this because the conservation biologists that study wood turtles, they all got tissue samples from the animals they studied. They created this thing called a haplotype map. It's CSI type stuff. You, you intersect a wood turtle in the airport on its way to China. You take a tissue sample throw it in the DNA map, you can see where it is, and like a tremendous number of turtles were coming out of West by God because we didn't have any regulations. And so we have poaching, which led to regulations, and then when they led to, when they put in the regulations, the only way they could think of to do it was to do the blanket regulations, and now you can have a black mamba in my state, but you can't have an eastern garter snake. <laughs> and, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you can't have the... What, what caused that? Mm-hmm. What caused that was a bunch of people... And they may not have even been herpers. But if we talk about how, well, you know, the stock came out of here and, you know, it's questionable how it got here. But, you know, that's how we got it. And you're kind of justifying that. If you're justifying that with the people that make the regulations to conserve an animal, 
you've lost them immediately. Mm -hmm. Like you have no credibility in their eyes, none, Uh, because you are literally saying, well, you know, I mean, we got to get them in. And I know that that's an argument in private herpetoculture, but at the same time, be freaking smart. (laughs) Don't have that conversation on a Facebook page. That's, you know, like, don't have the conversation, but like curate yourself. Um, and then when I go to these conservation meetings, like the park meetings, partners for amphibian and reptile conservation, herpetoculture comes up and they bam, 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 bam. And then, you know, there's five bad actors that are bringing it all down for us, but we just have to police ourselves. So, mm-hmm. And Rand, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, no, I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, to add to that, I think one of the biggest things is open conversation. You know, and within the people that I share my my inner circle with, when I come across something, I always share it. But some of the things that people don't want to talk about are viruses. They don't want to talk about any sort of disease, pathogen, anything like that. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, they don't want to be blacklisted or talk about that connotation or think to the fact, man, I don't want to talk about this. And even some people, I've seen this, sell off their whole collection knowing that they have a virus <laughs> inside of it. You know, and now you're just mass spreading things and going forth all that. I mean, right now, you know, for some of the people we've, we've chatted about it, discussed it, there is a new virus that's out there. And, you know, a lot of the thought has been that it's come over from Europe into collections and it is affecting colubrids. Um, and this was sent to me by a customer of mine just, and who's a researcher who said, hey, I just want to let you know, I don't know if it's on your radar yet, but, you know, you might want to keep a, you know, a cautious eye of this. And this is where the the almighty Rob Stone steps in and goes, um, no, we need to have these types of conversations or openly talk about it because the reality of it is, is knowing that, thinking about that. It makes us stronger keepers too, but yeah. you know, mm-hmm. share, not sharing that thought, um, the growth of inner collective aspects, even mentorship of some of these new keepers, you know, um, Billy, um, Hunt, he, he's a great guy too. He's coming up in the aspect of keeping. I mean, he has a ton of questions even too. even Kevin Sheehan with the Texas rat. He has a ton of questions. I mean, having those types of conversations where you can actually mentor someone and actually teach them, that's one of the coolest parts. thats I mean, that's how I got to be good friends with Stan, was he told me so much and taught me so much in, in some of the colubrid keeping. And But unfortunately, it takes a responsible keeper that's willing to take a, a back look, too, at themselves and say, listen, I don't know everything, yep. but I want to learn. You know, mm-hmm. I want to learn how to do fecal checks. I want to learn how to do and treat um, things preventatively within my collection. And having those conversations openly where there is no judgment, that just builds upon a community. But is social media the way to do that? I don't think so. Um, I really do not. I think a lot of that is personal conversations, getting to know people. Um, because, again, the social media aspect is creating a lot more drama in this hobby than is necessary. And, Mm -hmm. you know, off of it, I mean, like I mentioned, I mean, I, I made a post off of uh, someone's post just because I wanted people to recognize that 
this probably isn't the right area to have this discussion. Yes. And I didn't poke at anyone specifically or name anyone. All I wanted to do was present an idea out there. Big topic, right? But for those that probably saw my posting today, did they connect the dots? <laughs> the, the reality is they never completed that circle to realize and look back and say, this is something bigger. Maybe I, I really should start to think about it in this manner. Um, because the policing aspect from fish and wildlife, DNR, U.S. Arc is not the strongest body in the world to protect you from those types of bodies, especially when you're making dumb posts that can threaten everyone. Um, and I say dumb posts because, like, the reality of it is we have to be cautious in what you actually post and identify because your name is associated with it. And if we're not following laws, you're not following the law no, yeah. is the reality of it, right? Um, we live by it. We're governed by it, and we should almost be self-governed as a hobbyist if we want to continue keeping animals. Because in some countries, they're already limiting that. Yep. So, yeah. I um, kind of have responses to to both. Both of you, the excellent <laughs> answers there, guys. Excellent. Um, I'll, I'll jump back to Zach for a second um, because when you were talking about the Burmese and those issues and the individuals who are like, yeah, well, domestic cats, you know, are a bigger problem. And that mentality right there is so problematic, not only in our hobby, but again, it goes back to just our society because I, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to take it where we usually won't, won't take it. I'm going to take it to politics for a second. <laughs> I hate when if someone is bringing up our most recent presidents and if you say that you dislike either, then inevitably someone wants to come back. Yeah, well, so and so, you know, the other. So if you say you yep. dislike Trump, yeah, well, Biden, blah, blah, blah. If you say you dislike Biden, yeah, well, Trump, blah, blah, blah. No, you don't understand. I don't like either one of them. It's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> so right there. It's Bur Burmese are a problem. Cats are a problem. You don't use one to try to trump the other. Yes. You, you know They're what I mean? It's a problem. Yes. <laughs> and it's okay to admit that, right? It's okay to say that, you know, there's, yeah, they're, they're both wrongs. Two wrongs don't make a right here, uh, you know? And it, we, I don't know why we always feel that that's what we have to do. It, you know, we, ha we justify our opinion, you know, or we justify our side by trying to put down another side instead of mm. actually lifting ours up. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. oh, I can't pick mine up any higher. So I'm just going to try to put this one down. So mine's better. And, and it just doesn't make sense, you know? And, um, <sighs> With, with Matt's, yes, social media. <laughs> it's now, but as I said, I walk the middle ground. And I, I'll tell you that if it wasn't for YouTube and if it wasn't for Facebook, our hobby would probably be at least 30% less of what it is right now. Because it, be it, 
more. Probably, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Smaller. You know, there, there'd be <laughs> there fewer. You, you know, you know, because it, it it does grow. You know, a significant number of new faces. You know, it brings people into it, and not always for the right reasons. We know that, and it's it does as much bad as it does good. There's no doubt about it, and I think that part of the issue that we we fight because it like if you come back to a lot of these problems we have a lot of ego or arrogance that is outweighing achievement <laughs> yep you know and people want to be so much bigger louder it's they want to be heard when you don't really have anything important to say you're, you're just being loud, you know, and I don't get me wrong. I get as entertained as the next guy on stupid things that I probably shouldn't laugh at, but not really reptile related. I'm just saying in general, I mean, you know what I mean? It's uh, farts are still funny, right? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, but my point is the amount of, of ego that is coming in at times, it's certainly causes people to do things they shouldn't to try to continue to feed that ego. Now, I'll, with that being said, whenever we get like complimented for this show, oh, I eat that up. I mean, it <laughs> feels so good, but it feels so good because I, I feel it's not because of antics. It's not, I mean, hell, they don't even get to see us, right? No, they don't. You know, <laughs> it, it's... I, I like it because I feel that it's recognition on something that we actually – it's okay to be proud. It's not okay to be arrogant. You yeah. know what I mean? And and I am damn proud of what we do here. Yep. Um, and it was just um, – I, I turned on a random reptile podcast, one I'd never heard you know, or listened to before. I don't really listen to a lot, to be honest. It's I listen to us because I like to go back and critique – you know, myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, Clint, you, you know, you're, you're saying two th things wrong. Uh, like our last episode, I did this way too much. <laughs> that little noise. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I try, I want to get better. Um, and I, so I listened to a podcast and 10 minutes in Metazotics was mentioned 10 mm -hmm. minutes in, it was mentioned. I was like, Hey, they're talking about one of our videos. And then I had a customer come in and ask if I listened to this other podcast, which I had never heard of. And this was just two days later. It was, it was yesterday. He comes in and says, um, so, you know, do you listen to this podcast? I'm like, no. They're like, oh, well, you were name dropped on there. Actually, both of us were, Matt. They were talking about uh, mandarins and they were uh, mentioning nice. us. And I, they, I think they said it's one that you listened to. I, I'll have to ask him what the name was. I don't oh. recall. Um but it's just hearing that it in no way is an ego feed. It's I'm very proud of it, you know, because it shows that we're making a difference for the right reasons, you know. And and I think that if if more people would take that approach, how much better we would be, um, how much better social media could be utilized. But let's face it, we're not going to change human nature. It's. I'm not going to change the world, but I hope I can change the thought processes maybe of a few people I interact with 
you know, yeah. and, and that'll be our difference. And I would also, to go back real quick again to uh, what you were saying there, Zach, about interacting with the different um, government agencies and, and, and things of that nature, we, if we go about it the right way, because we can make a difference if we become proactive rather than reactive on some of the, these things. Mm-hmm. And because know this out there, everyone, legislation will come at some point to your area, whether it's federal, whether it's state, whether it's local, it, it will. It, it's inevitable. It's better to be a part of that conversation on good terms. Yes. Rather than being someone who's having to defend, you know, and fight against it. So a, a quick example of that, um, I've got a wonderful relationship with our local animal control officer in this county. And I think I may have talked about this a little bit before. And if I have, I apologize. And in the county that I am in here in Indiana now, it doesn't have any regulations other than what the state has in terms of reptiles. So I know legally, as long as I get the permits, I can have Gila monsters and I can have a copperhead, which I want both of those here. I want the Gila monsters because they're awesome. And (laughs) I mean, how often do you get to walk into a pet store and see that? So I want them as display animals. And I have a native area where we can show people what they find in their backyards. And I want a copperhead. Because I want to be able to say, this is what one really looks like. All of these are not copperheads that you think they are, right? And while I knew that I could have that, when uh, the local um, animal control came in, because she comes in and shops with us, um, I said, hey, I'm glad you're here because I wanted to talk to you. Um, Sometime in the next year, I'm thinking about doing this and I wanted to see if it, you know, are we good? Is everything okay with that? And it's not because I couldn't. It was because I wanted to give her that respect. Yeah. You know, and and include her. And what she says was, she goes, as of right now, yes, because there's no regulations. She said, however, I am wanting to put in a code, you know, for reptiles. And and again, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going. However, because of the relationship that we have built, she says, uh, where we want to put, you know, a code in and actually what I'd like to do is a little bit later this year, I'd like to sit down with you so that what we write makes sense. So it's done right. So that it's, these are, you know, the things that the typical keeper shouldn't have, but we don't make it overreach further than what we should. And that's, that's the best we can ever ask for right yep. there, you know? Um, and, and she said, she goes, you know, I, am I going to want people to be able to keep venomous, you know, here in, in the, the city limits? No. She goes, however, I want to be able to write something in there so that people like you that are wanting to do what you're doing have the ability to still do that. And, and that's, that's great. So I just think that instead of us fighting the different agencies, we need to be partnering with them before there's a problem so that we already have that, that communication, that relationship and that foundation to do this. And unfortunately the people that 
they are hearing, to your point, Zach, are not the people they should be hearing from for the most part. You know, not the one. And it's not that they're hearing. They're not talking. They're seeing. They're seeing the videos. Yeah. They're reading the posts. They're seeing, you know, that that's the problem. That, that, that's the yeah. problem. They're, they're consuming Correct. what's in front of them. And Correct. then they're basically making a judgment call. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree with all of that. That's been my experience um, here in West Virginia. Uh, I mean, the regs went in. As soon as the regs went in, they started to enforce the regs at the state level. And then they immediately realized how many people in West Virginia have a corn snake. <laughs> and that was one of the species that was, you know, listed. And then because I, I'm, I mean, I'm not being arrogant here. It's the exact same situation as what Clint said. Be- because I have the ability to have that dialogue, you know, corn snakes came back up again. And I was like, well, maybe we should talk about that because I guarantee you, we don't have candy cane corn snakes slithering around or maybe we do, but if we do, they can stay in the wild, but I'm, you know, you could do what the state, I think it's New Jersey could be wrong. Um, but one of the States, you know, in new England put in a rule, I'm pretty sure it's Jersey where like, if it has pink eyes, it's okay. Um, but if it has a black pupil, it's not okay because that could potentially be an animal that came out of the pine barrens, which that's the northernmost population of corns. And they should be, you know, protected because they're not exactly doing, they're doing okay. I'm not saying they're not, but the pine barrens are not doing okay. That's the better way of saying that. Um, so their habitats being being limited, but but you're, you know the dialogue and the communication and the respect keyword there, um, and I think that's actually the reason why people get so upset about what's happening in a state like Florida because there isn't respect. And in that particular c- scenario, like you we. We all know what happened in Florida recently. It involved a little boa, or sorry, a rather large female boa. And I'll fully admit that I watched that video with my background and was furious, like livid, not mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> like not okay. Um, but like, if you look at the dialogue and how we got there, that was it's it's just a mess, and we don't need that. Um, so I guess I'll just end it at that and not do anything to piss anybody off. So there you go. Um, okay. Uh, is it my turn for my question? I think it is. We're actually yeah. right on time. So mine doesn't really have any to do along this. So I'm getting ready to get a, a group of kids. New graduate students are coming in. We're overhauling Zusai entirely, um, which is for the, the best. Not that it was like bad. I don't want to give that impression by any means, but like you grow by, keeping the good and changing what needs to be changed. And so we're doing what equates to herpetoculture boot camp <laughs> for eight days. Um, and we've got tra- uh, the two animal keeping, my animal keeping staff and faculty, they've made you know, presentations and we're going over like everything, all 300 species, or they're going to get hands on every animal in the collection, which is just over 300 um, and we're sitting at about 100 taxa, so we're pretty diverse. Uh, but this question came up, and it was funny because it's something we talk about on the show, and we haven't ever, like, really dial- dug in on it, but we have. So this is kind of murky and gray. But my, my question is this. So we always talk about nuance with keeping. Mm-hmm. I want to know how the hell you learn nuance. I want to I wanna talk about that. So, you know – and what I'm getting at here is when you've when you when you take this seriously and you're you've got a collection of animals, and I'll say you've got ten or more snakes, 
Not that you can't have nuance with one snake, mm-hmm. but it's just a little little bit different. But you know, when I started with ten snakes, if I would have walked in the room with the king snake loose, I would have been oblivious to it until I touched the top. But I walk in the room and it's like I got this weird Jedi mind crap going on, and it was just like boom, boom right to the rack. Something's up. Something's out. I hadn't touched anything. <laughs> and right, right. Like I, you just kind of know. Um, it's like a sixth sense, uh, and I feel like when you get to that level, you don't just get there, Mm-mm. but you do. So how? What? What does it take to get to that point? Because I feel like when you're keeping that way, that's when you're really vibing. Like that's when you can nerd out at a whole different mm-hmm. level, and that's what we're all about with this podcast. And I got to teach it to a bunch of people, and I respect you both highly. So, how do you even get to that point? What's it take to get to that point? And, and when you get there, what do you do to keep it? I think I could probably start on this one, Matt. If that's all right. All right. So, a lot of it's going to. It starts, I think, with repetition, <laughs> right? And subtle shift within your repetition. So it's. I'm feeding that snake. I'm feeding that snake. I'm feeding that snake. And it's minor. I mean, where, okay. Um, if I I drop feed, that's, that's a phrase we, you know, you and I use a lot. So, you know, if I'm drop feeding frozen, you know, frozen thawed and the snake doesn't eat it, maybe did I have, okay. Did I drop it too far? (laughs) Maybe, maybe I need to move it closer to its hide and give it another hour. And if it eats, it starts to teach me, okay, now my next question is, is it that snake or is it that species? Mm-hmm. You know, I start expanding that out. So then if I've got 10 of that species, I start moving, okay, instead of just dropping, I'm going to start putting them next to their hides and see if I have better responses. And it's knowing that that nuance is never 100%. You know, it's never going to work on every single one of any species. No, you know, not all leucistic Texas rat babies are mean, but most, you know, <laughs> it's it's little things like that, that, you know, I start to learn. And I think it's in our last, well, I guess there'd be the episode before last on this one, um, when we talked about the business mm-hmm. and I'm big on trends. I map yes. out trends and I watch trends and I watch patterns. That's, that's what all this is. That's what nuance really is, is it's recognizing patterns within the animals. So I think that for what you're doing, Zach, that would be a conversation I'd start with to try to teach nuances, look for the patterns on what they do, what they don't do. And, slightly adjust your pattern and see what results happen. And that's where I feel you learn the nuance. It's things like, you know, again, the animals you, you have to tease to get to mm-hmm. eat a frozen thawed you know, versus the animals that if you try to tease them, there's no way they're ever going to take that. You know, you know, that's no, you can't, it doesn't work like that. Some of my mandarins, there's a few of them that'll take frozen thawed right off the bat. There's others that if I attempt to watch them eat, it's never going to happen. They are going to starve <laughs> themselves to death because no. And if I touch them, no. <laughs> ball, ball pythons. 
They want me to wiggle that thing, you know, but if I touch them with it, it's over. Game over. They're not going to eat. I, a black rat snake, pfft, I can slap them anywhere I want to and they're going to wrap that thing up, you know. <laughs> but it's you learn it by trying it, seeing what happens, and if it fails, adjusting a little bit the next time. And then, like you said, it starts becoming muscle memory almost. Yeah, it does. Um, and there's some things that you can try to teach as far as nuance, but it's it really is a feeling. Like I try to teach how to pick up a snake without getting bit because I, I'm sure you guys get asked that question all the time. How often do you get bit? How often do you get bit? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and and I, I answer, if I don't count babies because they bite me all the time, if I don't count them, maybe only once every three years do I get bit by anything of, you know, with size. And it's not because I'm not handling them. It's knowing how to pick them up and handle them in such a way that it's less likely to occur. And when I'm picking up like a, you know, small to medium sized colubrid or even a bigger one, I, I demonstrate it and I show the speed of which you move to pick them up will have a lot to do with it. Uh-huh. If you go fast, it scares them and they thump you. If you go real slow, slowly moving that hand towards them, they're going to bite the shit out of you, you know, because they, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they see, you know, danger coming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a nonchalant. It's moving like you're picking up a pencil. It's that speed. Of, and then you just, I cover them up. I cover their whole head up with my hand and then pick them up. And they're relaxed and it, it just helps. But that's a kind of nuance that no one ever said it to me. It's just, exactly. you know, learning, oh, I got bit when I, you know, was going that slow. Go a little faster. Oh, I got bit when I scared it because it jerked back, you know, when I was moving too quick. It's just that slow I don't want to say slow, just that steady, nonchalant movement. And that's it. Is it, it does become muscle memory. But if you're going to teach it, if you're going to learn it, if you're going to put it into words, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to put feelings into words. Yeah. It's it's pattern. It's recognizing theirs and slightly altering yours to find that perfect niche. And then then it's just ingrained in you. I like that. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned is I, I, one of the cool things about my job is that every fall I get somewhere in as as few as 40 and as many as 60 brand new keepers. And a lot of us don't actually engage with new keepers and they're all young. And I can flat out tell you like this, you know, a lot of people will complain about care sheets. This is the part of care sheets that bothers me because you can't, you you can't put on a care sheet the velocity your hand needs to be moving to pick up a bitey black rat snake. You're only going to get that through mentorship and watching somebody do it, or you go too slow, you get bit, you go too fast, you get bit, and then you get just right. And then, you know, you kind of learn that and, and you get the muscle memory like what Clint said. But um, one of the things I've learned is that in the world we live in today, because we have the ability to get information in 30 seconds – which, you know, all of us grew up in the 80s and 90s, and that sure as crap wasn't the way it was back then. Um, <laughs> there's this kind of need for instant gratification. Like, okay, how do I do this? The interweb says I do it this way. Okay, I'm going to feed 
you know, the snake, a frozen thawed pinky and just put it in there with it. It doesn't need it. Oh, God, now it's never going to eat again. Like that seems to be it's not going to eat and it's never going to eat. Like there's this kind of ah, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that happens. And I think that the nuance is how you, you keep like when that happens. It's just part of the experience that you have mm-hmm. gathered um, and that you realize, all right, like exactly what you said. I got I got to pivot on my pattern. Um, mm-hmm. a little bit and, and go from there. So what are your thoughts on it, Matt? I'm curious. I'm getting a Clint Bartley shirt printed and hanging it up next to my Rob Stone shirt. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, to add, add to Clint, I think the biggest thing is failure and self-recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about failure. I've failed a ton of times with keeping reptile. Um, you know, and, and I think sometimes when you go through those repetitions, you start to pick up on keen aspects of, you know, something that you and I, we talked about in that bromation episode about water bowls. I clean water bowls once a week, dump the whole thing, throw away the plastic bowl because I failed one winter where an animal had substrate in the water. I didn't recognize it. The animal died. So, you know, when you see stuff like that, then you start to build up your cues of like, Hey, something is off here. What am I missing? Did I change a variable? Did I change temperature? You know, even a a common principle and something that a lot of people don't recognize and review is you can put a thermostat and plug it in and set that thermostat to 84 degrees, but it's not going to be 84 degrees in the cage. Mm -hmm. I learned the hard way on that one. And the hard way that you learn by that is, hey, the animal's not eating, they're not acting right, um, could be regurgitation, you know, and then you start to think about, well, what what's going on here? And the first thing I always check is temperature, right, just to go off of it. I mean, I know some keepers that go even further with setting up their thermostats where they actually put the probe inside of the tub or inside the cage mm-hmm. and actually put it right in there. And it's just a means of convenience to actually make sure that they are properly attributed or set up to that point. Um, But I do think failure is something that we can grow from, something we can learn from. You know, I've I've failed at hatching out a number of species because incubation media, um, humidity of a tub, airflow, you know, and some of those variables we learn in terms of by doing and trying different things or even communicating with other keepers because I know some keepers that have no airflow on a tub. Um, I know some old senior keepers that used to keep eggs in a Ziploc bag and keep it shut. Um, now, would I do that? No. But, you know, the, the avenue or that aspect of learning, I think sometimes when we, we fail, we typically will reach out to someone that we want to communicate or ask questions to. And there is nothing wrong with that. Um, it only makes us stronger and, as a keeper and helps with that growth individually. And I think that really is an avenue where how you build up on, you know, repetition, like Clint said, you know, going through your day-to-day process because, hey, I've, something's off here. I did something wrong. Um, you know, and when you have that self-recognition, you know, you're, you're really self-reflecting on, what you need to grow upon and continue to increase or progress your keeping skills. And then you screw it all up again and then you (laughs) learn even more from it. 
And you know, it's the screwing up is something that is going to continue to happen if you continue to push forward. Yeah. You know, and and that's just, we had a a screw up that's happened here that we attempted something new and and I'll share it with everyone and and own it. And so one of my, she's my, my floor leader um, next to me, she's hands down the, you know, top in animal, um, uh, animal knowledge. Um, she, I go to her for so many things, including, I mean, she's the one who taught me a lot about the beardy. She's the one who taught me a lot about, um, uh, tarantulas, you know, just, it, it was great because the things that I needed more in she had, and that's, I'm a big believer, surround yourself with people that are good at things that you're not right. Um, so we, you know, had our first, uh, clutch of beardies here and things went phenomenal. Um, had the occasional toe nip, you know, I think maybe three out of 20 something babies had a couple toe nips, not uncommon. We all know that. Well, we wanted to try to eliminate it completely this time. And, you know, of course we've got the babies divided out, you know, as far as we can, with just a few in each, uh, big, big bin. And what, uh, what was attempted was to ensure that they would have even more access to feed. Um, and these things are being fed three times a day, seven days a week. You know, someone's coming in and, and making sure. So food was not a problem. So what they did was they took out the the paper lining that they were using in the, the bottom of these totes um, so that the beardies would be able to find all the bugs all the dubias, all that. Well, we've had several nips, toe nips, um, tail nips. I think maybe 12, you know, of the babies this time. And, you know, the young lady who, who oversees them, she's heartbroken. You know, she's, she's one that it's, it still hits her very hard when, a, you know, if a death occurs or especially an injury. And it, which I understand, you know, it's just, for yeah. us, Matt, you you know the phrase that I, I say to her, you know, over and over. Uh, yeah. it, it's you know, when you work with life, you deal with death. It's it's part of yeah. it, and things like this. And while, you know, in theory, it would have made sense for them to be able to have more access to to the bugs, it would eliminate those nips. But as soon as they told me what was happening, I said the problem's that paper. I said, you know, my, cause I just stepped back and what's the behavior, you know, what, what nuance do I see here? Mm-hmm. We took the bugs ability to hide away, but we also took the baby <laughs> beardies ability to hide away. So even though they're all the same size, they would still see the movement more so than they would have if they had, you know, more of that, um, more things to get under that kind of thing. So it's, I just learned another piece, another nuance, you know, of Mm -hmm. baby beardies. I already knew that they nipped if they didn't get enough food, but now I know it's not always whether or not they have enough food. It's also going to be, can they hide, you know, from one another? And, you know, here again, I mentioned earlier, you know, another episode that this is my 30th year breeding reptiles, but I'm still making mistakes. I'm still learning from those (laughs) mistakes. You know, and it's something that we have to continue to do. And 
don't let, to go back to what we said earlier, don't let that ego ever make you think that you're past being a student. You're still a student if you're still pushing forward. You're still learning. So, Thank you all. That was perfect. No, I, I think that what it boils down to is that nuance comes from um, wisdom and wisdom comes from experience. And experience comes similar. from failure. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. All, yeah. 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 That might be our first shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I want one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, that and, and trying to get that through to people in an eight day training is impossible because you can't, you can't get to that point in eight days. You mm-hmm. can, but, but you got to be aware that it's happening. And I feel like when you, all those little nuggets of experience that lead to the wisdom and the nuance and blah, blah, that's what then to me, that's what's really cool about herpetoculture is that I can like look back in time when I didn't know all these little tricks because I didn't experience the need for the trick. And now I can talk about the trick because I used the trick and then I have the experience of what came from doing that. I'm, 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 I'm about to deal with this, with these King snake babies because I have like two in each that didn't just eat. And I, and I, well, in each by each, I mean, I did the dumb thing where I paired 18, 18 pairs. And I thought maybe a third of these will go. And I got 18 clutches. So, you know, literally a hundred percent of the pairings worked. And I can't quite believe that that happened quite that way. (laughs) Um, And I did lose some eggs at home. This isn't at school. This is at home. Uh, But it seems like, because I'm a nerd and I keep data on all this crap, 80% of the clutches are just like pounding pinkies right off the bat. And then now I've, I've gone past like the third feeding for the first three clutches. And I have two to three in each clutch that haven't eaten. So that's about nine snakes. And it's just going to be more snakes. So now I'm getting into the stuff we've talked about on the show that I've never had to do, like washing the pinkies in Dawn. I told... The uh, I told my wife, get me, please, when, when you go out, uh, grab a bottle of Dawn for me. And she literally looked at me and was like, what the hell are you using it for? Because I know you're not washing dishes. And I was like, I'm washing pinkies because Matt said so. <laughs> and, she <was> like, <laughs> and, and she was like, Jesus Christ. OK, <laughs> I'm going to be boiling pinkies. I have my mice. Just I've I've got one male, three female mice set up in a twenty gallon, so I have live. I froze a couple of the babies that I had some eggs roll over, and they the or I had some stillbirths, so I've got snakes in the freezer. And the difference between me in twenty fifteen and me in twenty twenty three is like I'm actually now looking forward to this challenge, whereas before I would have been like Jesus, this is going to suck. Like now it's like okay. I've, I've, I've got some of this. I've got some experience under my belt. I can do this. Um, and when I come out of it, I'm going to come out better. Uh, and then I'm going to have, you know, the experience of that. And I'll probably end up keeping the snakes that I – it's funny because I just got done saying that I'll keep the robust feeders. But if I invest all this time, I'm going to get emotionally attached to little bastards. And those are the <laughs> <that> I keep. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah. But no. All right. Well, I think we did that that well. So – if you like the format of the show, because this was a new one for us, um, just let us know because we're not going to be able to have Matt around often, uh, but we will have him around periodically. And um, 
I thought this was fun. It was a nice change of pace. It was kind of in a weird way. It was almost like a therapy session for getting a <laughs> little bit of venting, a little bit of, little venting. Bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it kind of reminded me of Festivus, like airing of grievances. <laughs> no, I love it. I love, and, and Hey, as a reminder, uh, if you're listening, please, Send any of us, any of the three of us, yes. questions that you would like to be answered on here. It doesn't have to be an entire show topic, nope. j- just anything. Shoot questions so that we can do more of these type uh, of shows. Um, so we, we just need we need that content, you know, that yep. you want to that you want because um, we're not going to post videos of us getting bit. No, nope, so not doing that's, that. <laughs> that's not happening. I might. We'll see. Right now? Okay. <laughs> Matt's going to go rogue. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that this is a good place to wrap it. So, um, Matt, where can people find you? Depends what state I'm in. Depends oh, if there I'm you traveling. Go. <laughs> we had to chain him to a chair just to get yes. this episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Uh, best place to message me really is through the Serpa Mitra page on Facebook or Instagram. Excellent. And then Clint? Uh, check us out on metazotics.com. And you can message me on Facebook, uh, either my personal page, Clint Bartley, or the Metazotics business page. Uh, and you can also email us at metazotics at gmail.com. All righty. And if you're trying to get a hold of me, um, I, I'm at Jesus brain fart. I'm Dr. Crawdad at Instagram, Zach Loafman on Facebook. Um, you can look me up online to find me uh, electronically, email zloafman at westliberty.edu. Uh, anybody that's listening to this that is a young person, if you're in high school and you want to work with snakes in college, look at West Liberty because we literally have – of those 300 animals, 200 of them easy are snakes. So there you go. Uh, so we, we can give – we can you know help you out with a degree. And then if you're in the, the graduate works, always looking for solid, solid um, young people that want to get a master's degree in the zoo science ma- major. And then – um, I'm out actually starting to dive into just herpetology for the sake of herpetology as well. I have a couple of snake ecology projects that are about to kick off, which I'm pretty pumped about. And then before we finish, because we don't always do it, but we always think to do it, I can say that, is that we want to thank NPR Network for hosting us. Uh, I know that all three of us are incredibly proud to be part of this network. Um, a lot of the stuff we talked about in the episode today, which is our ethos, is also the network's ethos. Everybody that's part of this, um, all of the podcast hosts, we all pretty much vibe on the same plane, and that's why we're all members of this network, and we're proud of it. So. And with that, whatever day it is, morning, afternoon, night, um, I hope you're having a good one. And yeah, catch us next time on Colubrity and Glory Radio. Later. Later.